Hey guys, welcome back to Physique Science Radio. I'm your host, Lane Norton, with my co-host, Sohee Lee. And today we have a very special guest. Um, this is uh, someone who essentially is a mentor to me and I consider to be, uh, I think, one of the brightest minds in metabolism. And I was blessed to be able to learn to, from him for um, half a decade. And this is my, uh, my PhD advisor, uh, Dr. Donald Lehman. Don, how are you doing? I'm great. Thanks for the uh, introduction, and uh, it was uh, fun to have you in the lab. <laughs> he put fun in. Fun. Quotes. He's probably yeah. I was gonna say he's probably doing air quotes right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Hopefully, I wasn't too much of a pain in the butt. <laughs> no, it was a great time. We had a we had a great time. It was a great time for exploring all sorts of things and discovering some really new and interesting uh, thoughts and ideas about uh, protein and amino acids. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that for a second. You're you're a protein guy. In fact, you're. I actually remember when I got to University of Illinois and I was interviewing uh, for the position in lab, and you you said to me, "Well, our lab typically thinks about five to ten years uh, ahead of everybody else." And I, I thought in my huh. head, I'm like, "Well, he's he's probably just trying to pump up the lab." And, and by the time I graduated, I said. Oh no, that, that that was very true, because um, I just saw like how outside the box everything was. Um, tell us, like, how did you get into science, and how did you how did you keep that outside the box thinking? Because I find that a lot of times, what what, and I don't want to poo poo the schooling system too much, but like that inquisitiveness and that forward thinking, like we almost like beat that out of kids. That it's like, no, don't ask that question. Like, for example. A kid asks, why is the moon round? And instead of saying, well, that's a very good question, we say, well, you don't need to know that. It's not a big deal. And, and I think it kind of, I don't know, I think it kind of hurts our creativeness. So tell us, how did you get into science and how did you manage to kind of keep that creativity throughout the years? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll comment on the second part first. The uh, I think the creativity is something that we do have to be careful with. I think that American universities actually are sort of noted for it in that we allow students time to develop. Uh, as you know, in my lab, things weren't super structured, that you had a freedom to explore. And I think that is how we made great discoveries. But uh, anyway, I just like thinking that way. I don't like to think too rigid or structured. And uh, I think uh, serendipity and observation are really the key to science, and so you, not, you need not to be too structured. <laughs> but uh, anyway, back to the first part of the question. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I think in nutrition science, the pathways are, are not necessarily very structured. Uh, I actually uh, grew up being very interested in science and went off and got a degree, actually two degrees in chemistry, and while I was doing that, I met a professor uh, who was in the area of biochemistry. I, I was actually studying organic chemistry and took a biochemistry course and really liked it. And uh, the professor got me interested in, in issues of protein synthesis and the mechanisms of it. And I just sort of had a knack for it. And he suggested that I actually ought to consider a PhD, which was the farthest thing from my mind. And he knew a group at Minnesota that was really developing at that time sort of issues of ribosome and initiation and, and you know, the whole anabolic process. And he sort of suggested I go up there and study, and, and they happened to be in nutrition, which I wasn't even thinking about. And it happened to be in a laboratory that was also studying muscle uh, metabolism, which I grew up doing athletics, and so all of that just sort of sung to me. So, frankly, I kind of backdoored my way into it. It certainly wasn't any big plan. I remember having a chemistry professor back in, in uh, my master's degree who said, you know, when you really find your true profession, it'll be easy for you. And that actually was what metabolism and muscle biochemistry was for me. That's, that is so funny because, as you know, we had uh, Stu Phillips on here last time. And it, just a very similar story. And I would not say I'm quite as similar, but not dissimilar. So basically it started out as we had questions and we didn't feel like we knew enough. And we said, oh, well, mm -hmm. 
there's this thing that we can go do to answer more of our questions, and that was graduate school. Even though I never, by the time I was getting ready to finish graduate school, yes, I wanted that PhD because I put in so much work. But I, I, it was never when I got there. It was just I had these questions, and that's kind of what Stu said. That seems like what what you're saying. And also, what's very interesting is I, I did uh, an undergraduate in biochemistry as well. And one thing I think I I I observed at least in the classroom. Uh, when I got to Illinois was I felt like that biochemistry background, that molecular background served me a little bit better than if I'd just done nutrition as an undergraduate. Um, having that kind of broad base in metabolism, uh, I felt like it was easier to go from biochemistry to nutrition than nutrition to biochemistry. And so when I talk to young people getting into science, I always say go broad first and then specialize. How, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think that is totally true. It's it's very easy for me to teach people about nutrition and metabolism and physiology, but if you don't have that fundamental background in biochemistry and chemistry where you can work in the laboratory, it's just really an uphill battle. Uh, I When I went out to find students, I mean, one of the things I like is the practical application of nutrition and metabolism and, and thinking about muscle but really what the foundation is is that understanding of biochemistry and so you know I, I always look for students who had the biochemistry type background but then wanted to find an application uh, science to, to work in. Hmm. Dr. Lehman, I can really appreciate coming from a background of, you know, I just have my undergrad degree right now. And I, I remember last podcast with Dr. Stu Phillips, I was like, I just feel so out of my league here with you two. And what are you talking about? But, uh, you know, I can I can really appreciate the, uh, um, you know, first of all, you have, you know, you have your PhD and, and you've done all this academic work, but you're so open, open minded, um, which I don't think we come by very often. Um do you, I was wondering for the readers, or for the listeners, I guess, what is your uh, specifically specific area of focus nowadays? Um, well, I, you know, my entire life I've been interested in, in protein and amino acid metabolism, so that really hasn't changed. So back in graduate school, uh, I, I, I was focused on protein synthesis and amino acid metabolism, and I kind of got into branch-chain amino acids, and and so all of that, but I, I've sort of broadened more into total macronutrients. I'm interested in how protein fits into the balanced diet, and, and I'm interested in the food sources, and I'm interested in sustainability. I do a lot. In- that sounds a lot like what we talk about here. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot in performance athletics. Nice, yeah. Loss. I really like the sounds of that. Yeah, well, why don't we? Why don't we? I think we have a, a good stopping point there. So why don't we take a quick break, and then when we come back, I'm, I'm, we're going to get into dig into uh, more of your actual research uh, that, that's gone on through the years. So uh, stay with us. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, Lane here. Well, you all know how much I love variety in my diet. I can't stand eating the same bland food every single day. That's why I love www.myoatmeal.com. It's an amazing website where you can go and customize oatmeal. I know, I know, I know. Why would I want to go customize oatmeal? I can eat it right out of the bag. Well, let me tell you why. Myoatmeal.com has 22 billion combinations of flavors and ingredients. You heard me right, 22 billion combinations. Whether you're picking out a pre-made blend or making your own customized blend, they have all kinds of flavors. Want red velvet cake? No problem. Snickerdoodle? You can make it happen. Butter rum? Oh yeah. Cheesecake? You can get it done. And you have all kinds of additives you can add. Apples, raisins, pears, nuts, all kinds of seeds, and you can sweeten it any way you want. Need to eat gluten-free? No problem. They've got it. The best part of it all? The macros are listed as you're customizing your blend, and they change depending on which ingredients you add. 
Eating a little bit lower carb? No problem. Choose ingredients that make your carb count lower. Need more protein? Add higher protein ingredients. You can customize your blend to make it almost any breakdown that you want. And the prices and macros change as you change your blend. So go on over to www.myoatmeal.com and check out some of the blends that have already been made or be adventurous and make your own. That's myoatmeal.com. Check it out, guys. Welcome back, guys. I had a... Uh, interesting question that uh, I think many of you will be interested in, um, because mostly because I know Lane still gets questions about this topic of intermittent fasting, and uh, which reminds me of a really funny story about uh, Lane and I go back a bit three years ago. Uh, I remember this is one of my first times communicating with him, and I was writing an article on intermittent fasting, and it simply the topic was simply intermittent fasting. Is it for you? Should you or should you not do it? And it just went through a list of here are you know. If, if you fall under this category, here are some indications, here are some contraindications. And then I got a quote from, from Dr. Lane Norton about his thoughts on intermittent fasting. And uh, uh, I think it was very, you know, I thought it was a neutral quote, scientific. But um, I think as the internet tends to be, once the uh, article got published, I feel like the a small corner of the fitness industry kind of imploded and then everyone, you know, a lot of people were very upset. So if you want to, you can fi- you can just Google Lane Norton intermittent fasting to find it. And I think it's the first first or second search result that pops up. Uh, but uh, we go way back with intermittent fasting. Yeah. And essentially what I said, just to, just to clarify, was that I thought that intermittent fasting was probably a good idea for some people who it fit their lifestyle where they can't be you know eating three four rigid meals a day like for example uh, physicians or you know people who have a really really kind of on-the-go lifestyle they maybe fit their you know when they don't have rigid kind of times that they can eat that that would fit better and then it was probably fine for fat loss there's not really any any indication that meal frequency makes a difference for fat loss Mm -hmm. and if anything a few less meals might be a little bit better but that I didn't think it was optimal for muscle mass. And like you said, a, 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 a small corner of the universe <laughs> imploded. So we, we'd like to get actually uh, Dr. Lehman's take on that, on, on kind of intermittent fasting. And, uh, but be careful. They might come after you on Twitter. Right. Uh, and um, <laughs> just, just to be clear, just so, so that we're all on the same page, uh, most – well, there are many different ways to approach intermittent fasting. But I think the most popular approach is to stick to a 16-hour fast and an 8-hour feeding window every day. So that's how we're going to define it for the, conver- the topic of for the point of this conversation. Eight-hour feeding window. Yeah, I. I mean, I think that is important actually to have a definition, and I. Um, I guess I'm fairly flexible about kind of net intakes per day, uh, and in my earlier comment about protein meals. So again, I I think it's a little about the you know what outcomes are you after. Um, if I was really looking for maximum muscle mass, uh, I, my, the logic doesn't tell me that having a long fast each day is the right way to go. Uh, if, if I'm looking to change my composition, reduce my body fat, and sort of change my composition, more muscle, less fat, it makes a little bit more sense to me. Um, but at the same time, I'm not real rigid about meals. Uh, I frequently am a two meal a day person. I eat breakfast and I eat dinner. So I space my meals out about eight hours, you know, or whatever, 12 hours, 12 hours apart. So, uh, you know, I think the, I think the up and down pattern of, of a fast and recovery is sort of the way the body does repair and remodel. So I think that concept's okay. And I frankly don't have a huge, I'm not real rigid about intermittent fasting. I've Mm -hmm. seen people in the sense of meal skipping. I've seen people go to alternate day fasting. I've seen all sorts of iterations of that. Um, I think they're more useful for body composition than they are for muscle mass, though. Well, I I totally agree with that. I think, but I think what we get down to, and you talked about sustainability, and I think we'll kind of move towards that. Mm Especially because you talked about flexibility, and, and and so he or I are fans of flexible dieting. Big on that, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I think that what you're looking for, a lot of times, it's fine to have 
kind of ideas of what we think are going to be best physiologically. But at the end of the day, whatever you're going to do has to be something that's sustainable. And if you tell somebody like that has your travel schedule, Dr. Lehman, um, I need you to eat uh, six meals a day. Uh, they're just going to, they're just going to go, no, I can't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's just not going to work for their schedule. And so I think the overall, my, my problem with kind of intermittent fasting or any kind of diet that becomes dogma, uh, and it's, I'm not just picking on intermittent fasting. This can be the case with many different types of diets, like a paleo, for example. I think the fundamental idea of paleo, you eat more meat, you eat more vegetables, you eat more fruits, you eat less refined right. carbohydrates. That's fine. Uh, it's been when you become dogmatic about it, where well, you can't have milk because cavemen didn't drink that. It's like well, every indicate every study we have says that you know dairy is actually like really good for you. Um, yeah. Most cavemen only lived to forty too. That, yes, exactly. They also didn't drive Priuses <laughs> and go to the bathroom in toilets. Yeah, they need to get on that. They need to get on that twenty first century diet. You know, we're living to, to eighty. Uh, yeah. So. Um, so I think when you become so I think the overall arc of diets that are successful is they induce restriction in some way, and so with intermittent mm-hmm. fasting, you're not having some kind of magic go on. You're inducing a restriction, and if you if it fits your lifestyle and you're able to stick to it, that restriction becomes consistent, and that consistency leads to improvements. Right. And I, it's the same I, thing. Sorry, yeah. go ahead, Doctor Lynn. Yeah. No, I think the I think the body is a pretty amazing biological machine and I think it will adapt and, and there's lots of evidence around the world from Eskimos to people who live in the tropics for healthy diets that are different and different lifestyles and and I think we need to you know your word not not be so dogmatic about it you know I you know I eat chocolate cake once in a while but I have a I have a very um, good understanding of how I distribute my macronutrients and whether I'm traveling or, you know, I have certain targets for protein, I have certain meal distributions, and, you know, I can eat all kinds of food, and there's virtually no food I won't eat, but people who would watch me eat will quickly recognize that I'm hitting certain targets when I eat. And that's, so this leads us right into flexible diet, that is the crux of flexible dieting, uh, which is, so we'll, we'll give you kind of our definition our definition is that you know, you're, we, we don't limit people on food choices because we found just kind of through trial and error of working with people that if I tell somebody, hey, you can't have ice cream, mm-hmm. when, what happens is they can resist it for a certain period of time, but then when they finally have it, it ends up being a complete blowout. And so I tell people, I would rather have you just have the ice cream and still hit your, your protein, carbohydrate, and fat targets for the day and keep moving along, you know, maybe it's not, you know, maybe if you want to get, we have people who are, you know, very, 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 you know, extremists in the fitness industry. So, well, you can't tell me that that ice cream is better than that sweet potato for you. Well, I mean, you, I guess you can make an argument based on fiber content and some, some other really small measures, but at the end of the day, consistency is what's going to bring you results. And so right. we've gotten away from just saying, hey, eat these things, not these things, to just hey, let's try to hit this this number. But also, uh, it's interesting you said about tracking. Like, So for me, people will also take that to the extreme and they'll, they'll you know, take a food scale with them to a restaurant, which, again, if you're, if you're getting ready for a show or something that's physique-centric and you've got to do that, I understand that. But, you know, if you're in your average every day, you're not competing, you know, taking, you know, you don't need to take a food scale to a restaurant. You don't need to, you know, take every piece off your plate, weigh it, like, but I still, I still practice kind of cognitive restraint or, or mindful eating, let's say mm-hmm. I'll call it, mm-hmm. where I'm looking at my portions and I'm saying, right, you know, that's about 40, 30, 40 grams of protein, about 50 grams of carbs and 20 grams of fat. And so I'm kind of in that way self-restricting and self-regulating at every meal. Is that what you mean when you say you're, you're kind of tracking? Is that Because I find it to be a very big part of sustainability is the ability to go out and still enjoy yourself. Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. And, you know, I've done a lot of weight loss, you know, obesity type research. And I know that what you're saying in terms of people's cravings, people's satisfactions, you know, just having a sustainable diet, that you're exactly right. And I mean, when I I look at food, 
I, I always have two things that I'm thinking about. One is, am I hitting a protein target? Because I want to have the anabolic response in muscle. Uh, and I'm not a I'm not a bodybuilder or doing physique contests, but I'm I'm a competitive athlete. I do competitive. I do tournament tennis, and I'm a downhill skier, and I I do scuba diving. So I want my body to be in shape, but it's in shape for performance kinds of things. And uh, when I'm looking at it, I'm looking at protein amount per meal. How many meals do I want to hit? And I'm looking at a carbohydrate threshold that controls insulin. Insulin is clearly the negative in the game. It's, it relates to storage of body fat, it relates to inflammation, mm -hmm. and for heart disease and, and cancer and all sorts of things, it's the thing we need to be able to control. And, uh, you know, I just, I was looking at a paper out of Kevin Tipton's lab, even in terms of athletics, in terms of carbs, uh, their paper that just came out in the last couple of days showed that we only need about 39 grams of carbs per hour of intense exercise. And you think about how many, you know, the average American is eating 300 grams of carbs per day. How many hours of exercise mm -hmm. does that take? <laughs> right, right. I think, so one of the things uh, uh, I'll, I'll touch on too is, so people will, I'm actually kind of known, Dr. Lehman, you'll find this funny, in the fitness industry is a quote-unquote high-carb guy. Uh, but that's because, so my point of view is when somebody's targeting fat loss or, or whatever it is, I would like them to be able to eat uh, as many carbohydrates as they can while still losing weight. But I always emphasize that number is completely dependent on things like you said, like your activity level, your individual metabolism, you know, how many, cal how many overall calories can you eat? Mm -hmm. And so for some people, I mean, I've worked with some people who they can eat 200, 250 grams of carbohydrates a day and lose body fat just fine yep. and, the, and the, their blood work looks good and all those sorts of things. And so I say, well, why would I drop them to, you know, 100? Even though, even though we have data out there that says, hey, you know, uh, lower carb might have these benefits. I say, well, for, the, for these people, for these individuals, that 200, 250 grams of carbs is technically low carb for that individual. Exactly. But, but by the same token that's going to be high carb for somebody else. And mm -hmm. so I find that the carb tolerance between individuals tends to be kind of, I mean, there's, there's quite a broad spectrum out there. And I always tell people when, when we give numbers, so when we talk about numbers, for people to try not to become too dogmatic on those individual numbers because you never want to say, well, this is it. This, this uh, you know, Don Lehman said, uh, 39 grams of carbs per hour of exercise, and I did an hour and a half of exercise, so I'm having, uh, what would it be, 89 and a half grams of carbs, you know what I mean? So yeah. no, um, I, think, I think you're right about that, but I, on the other hand, I do think the numbers help kind of get some perspective about it, that okay. one of the things that we have learned is that when you get above about 35 grams of carbohydrate in a meal, you're going to get a pretty resounding insulin response. And if you sort of track that out at three meals, that gets you into the 100 grams per day of carbs, which actually meets pretty much all your nutrition requirements, five servings of vegetables, three servings of fruits. You can have that, meet your nutrition requirements. Uh, and, and so that's kind of always been my threshold for, well, that's, that's the target. And right. then if you're going to eat, and, and frankly, if you don't eat that many carbs, then the body has to convert protein into those carbs. Right. I mean, basically, unless you're going to commit to being totally ketogenic, the body's going to use about 80 grams of carbs per day and you either eat them or, or you make them from protein. So, uh, and then as you go above that sort of 100 threshold, pretty much you have to earn them by exercise. And, you know, I routinely eat probably about 180 grams of carbs per day, and I have the exercise to back that up. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Well, let's take another quick break, and when we come back, I actually want to uh, uh, touch on a topic that Sohi and I are very passionate about, which is uh, a little bit more into the sustainability question and, and, and uh and weight regain. So let's take a quick break. Wow. And we'll, uh, I know you were excited <laughs> about that, right? So we, right. let's take a quick break and we'll come back. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, many of you out there know I spend a lot of time bagging on bad coaches. 
And certainly, there's more than enough of those to go around. But a lot of times people ask me who I do recommend. Well, one person we can recommend wholeheartedly is Paul Ravella of ProPhysique. Paul has received more referrals from me over the last two years than any other coach, and with good reason. Paul is competent, professional, caring, and carries himself with a lot of integrity. If you hire Paul, you're going to be getting the very best at a great value. Paul is also one of my closest personal friends, and I can say with absolute certainty I feel 100% comfortable with referring my closest friends and family to him, because I've done that. Paul Ravella of ProPhysique.com. Check him out, guys. Hey, guys. You know me, and you know I love cooking up macro-friendly option meals. But sometimes when I'm always on the go, that's just not an option. So when I'm on the go or can't cook a meal, I love Quest Bars. You know I love protein and fiber, and these are packed with 20 grams of high-quality protein and super high in fiber. And it's easy to stay on target when you've got Quest Bars that you can bring with you anywhere. They're delicious compared to other bars that taste like bricks and leave you feeling gassy and bloated. So pick up a bar of Quest Bars today at questnutrition.com, GNC, and Vitamin Shop. Also, follow them on Instagram, at questnutrition, and youtube.com slash questnutrition for great recipe ideas to keep you on your goals but eating delicious. You're back listening to Physique Science Radio. I'm your host, Lane Norton. We have our special guest, Dr. Don Lehman, with us. Uh, and Dr. Lehman, I was thinking about a um, – and you were there, so I don't know if you remember this or not, but the first the first conference I ever presented at, Experimental Biology, I remembered I got a, I had a really – got a really hard time by uh, a certain professor. And um, this person was, was under the impression – this person did um, – kind of minimum amino acid requirement work and they they I think didn't even I don't want to say they didn't understand but I believe that they thought I was saying their work was invalid or <laughs> or or didn't or that they had the wrong number essentially and what I was trying to say was that no uh, their work is totally valid but that's it that their their question is totally different than our question that they were concerned with minimal protein requirements while we're concerned is what what may be optimal for for muscle health and function and uh, I find that that's a that's even the basic question we get a lot how much protein do I need I hear that a lot from bodybuilders need yeah and, yeah and I say well you're asked I, I know what you're asking but you're, you're actually wording the question incorrectly but I think that that question is kind of pervasive throughout nutrition and even the recommendations because if we look at carbs and fats, it's kind of a question of, well, we think we can kind of get away with this. But when it comes to protein, it's just completely a minimum requirement. Right. Uh, can you speak to how you got into studying that and, and what some of the found findings you've had over the years? Yeah, I think those are you know really important points. And, and, and frankly, it's one of the big debates in nutrition right now. And uh, you know, I think those of us who, you know, sort of consider protein our expertise, like Bob Wolf and Stu Phillips and, and Luke Van Loon and Doug Patton-Jones, the, the folks who are sort of noted for this area, you know, I think we look at the protein range of the dietary reference intakes as, as, a, as a range of good nutrition and that the minimum is the RDA and and that's sort of where everybody seems to be stuck. They think the RDA is a limiting number, and, and yeah. frankly, it's just the number that prevents deficiency. And I think we'd all agree we don't really have very many protein-calorie malnutrition deficiencies in the United States. But, right. but uh, you know, what we're also learning is the key to long-term health really is muscle health. And that doesn't really relate very well to the old measurements of nitrogen balance, which are the basis for, for the RDA. So I think the big change now is really learning that when you start focusing on muscle health, muscle performance, long-term aging, you get a number that's quite a bit above that RDA. And I think that's really the change that's going on. So how high do you think that recommendation goes? I know there's, you know, the difference between uh, need. Obviously, what does need really mean? But what 
uh, especially for a lot of our physique athletes who are listening here, they'll be curious to know what 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 would you consider to be optimal? What does the science say nowadays? I, you know, so we know that the RDA set at around 0.8, and there's some debate whether that might it should be a little higher than that, even for the minimum. But you know, I think most of the you know, I think there's two answers to where the need should be. One is what outcome are you thinking about? And if the outcome is is optimal or maximal muscle protein synthesis, most of those numbers are falling between about 1.2 to 1.5. But you also get in the issue is what's the healthiest diet? Uh, and that gets into a question of, <clears throat> you know, when you start getting into your full calorie load, are you better off eating more carbs or more protein? And that's a different outcome decision. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the reality is, you know, I the other thing that's going on is we're also getting away from just thinking about it as grams per kg to realizing the real issue is probably grams per meal. And so I think those are the changes. And, like you know, that. I think a number of 1.2 to 1.5 is a pretty good functional number. But I also think we're getting into the era where we're realizing there's probably a minimum per meal of something around 30 grams that's equally important number. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, so I remember when I was doing uh, my graduate work, and I kept talking, and, and, and for those that aren't familiar, you're kind of writing throughout your, your graduate work. You don't just save it all till the end. You have to do a prelim and you're writing grant proposals. So much of the stuff you're kind of writing just kind of resurfaces over time. A lot of it tends to look similar, uh, you know, until you get data and you evolve your hypothesis, that sort of thing. Um, but and everything in the grant proposals and my prelim and, and then near, the, near where I was starting to write my thesis, I had talked about uh, protein distribution. And uh, you you were reading through things, and, and you said, you know, you you've talked a lot about protein distribution, and you haven't actually tested it. You you probably ought to take that out of your thesis or actually test it. <laughs> and uh, and so we had always, I think, the peripheral data was there, but nobody had really tested it directly as to does it actually make a difference how you distribute your dietary protein, and should we just think about it as a grams per day number? Or should we be thinking about it on a yeah. per meal number? Because as Stu Phillips said last week, the body really doesn't have a way to store amino acids. You're either going to you know, use them for protein synthesis or they're going to be oxidized for the most part. So tell us a little bit about um, the science behind that and, and what the findings were. The, the meal distribution, I think, really came out to some extent of the research that we did, you know, you were a part of, where we really got into looking at, at leucine and the mTOR signal. So going back to the days with uh, Tracy Anthony and Josh Anthony and, and Greg Paul in my lab, we, we recognized that leucine had a unique signaling element and that it responded to sort of how much was in a bolus, how much was in a meal. And if you stop and think about that, Literally every publication that's ever been done in the in the field of protein nutrition for muscle is always based on taking an overnight fast and and hmm. sort of depressing protein synthesis and then looking at a meal response. And I think people forget that, but you know, I think all of that, what it told me was that first meal of the day, the amount of protein in the meal and the quality of the meal really was the key. And we started thinking about that in the mid-1990s, and I think 20 years later, that's sort of what has come to pass. And, you know, your, your early comment that, you know, we sort of think ahead of the field in some regards is, is a little bit arrogant to say, but the reality is we sort of had that vision based on leucine metabolism in the, in, in the mid-1990s, and, uh, you know, that, that theory has basically gotten stronger and stronger over the last 20 years. Well, that's, that's, that's true. And, and when, I, when I told that story, hopefully you're not an arrogant guy and anybody who's met you knows that. So I hope I didn't make it sound that way. I just, you were more, uh, when you, I have to give some context to that comment. You were uh, trying to, I, I, I think, impress upon me how important it was to keep an open mind. And... 
I think that's very important because, um, in, in fact, in regards to distribution, when I, because I think as scientists, you know, everybody has bias. Like nobody, if somebody tells you they don't have bias, they're, I mean, they're lying. Everybody has some kind of bias. Um, but the, the key is, do we care more about getting the right answer than we do about being right? And yeah. one of the first experiments uh, we did when I got to, to Illinois was nobody had really examined a time course of muscle protein synthesis in response to a complete meal. They, they had looked at it in response to kind of essential amino acid infusion or, or bolus amino acid infusion, but not a whole lot in complete meals. And I mean, you, your question was, are we even measuring in the right spot? So when people, when you're looking at muscle protein synthesis values, a lot of times you're just looking at a snapshot in time, uh, whether it be 60 minutes after the meal or 90 minutes or 120 minutes. And there was honestly data with any of those values. And so the, the, the first thing you said was, are, are we even measuring in the right place? Mm. And so uh, we, did, we did an experiment and I just, my thought was, well, leucine is important. Leucine stimulates muscle protein synthesis. And as long as leucine stays elevated, um, there will be uh, protein synthesis staying elevated, and we got the data back, and it was not like that whatsoever. It was, uh, you know, leucine was very important for the triggering of the response, but at three hours post meal, leucine was still well elevated above baseline, and muscle protein synthesis was completely back down to baseline. And uh, I, I remember I kept, um, I kept, I, I was at my brain was having a hard time wrapping around this. And you said you need to stop trying to make the 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 data fit your hypothesis and make mm -hmm. you know make your hypothesis fit the data, and that was kind of a nice mind blowing moment for me as to you know kind of made the parent that my bias was driving everything instead of letting the data tell the story, and uh, and, and so I think that was again one of those thinking ahead things and not get allowing yourself to get stuck in dogma, which I think in science. That, that can become easy that we care, we start to care more about being right than getting the right answer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I totally get it. I, you know, I think that we all have to recognize we have our biases. And in science, the, it's important to set up a hypothesis and it's important to test it. But you want to be careful not to be wedded to the outcome. You want to be uh, intelligent enough that you can observe what the data is telling you. And, you know, and, and we have to be flexible enough to, to change. So if, you know, if I certainly have my opinions and, I, and, and my biases, but I hope I'm op always open enough, open-minded enough to, to change with what the data keeps telling me. So, uh, you know, I think that is one of the things that we sometimes get guilty of. And, and uh, I think grants and things make people even more susceptible to that because yes. you kind of need to prove your hypothesis. But... I think really good science is always open to let the data tell you where to go. <laughs> Absolutely, and and I remember, um, I think you said uh, when when Tracy and Josh kind of and you guys first proposed that leucine was the the regulator regulating amino acid for muscle protein synthesis. Uh, a lot of people were <laughs> very 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 skeptical of that. Not and not you know rightly skepticism should be a, a first response in science, but almost to the point of closed-minded skepticism. Yeah, I, you know, at the time, everybody was looking at the liver because it was easy to study back in that, those days. You know, it, muscle is really pretty hard to study. And, yes. And at, at, <laughs> at, yeah, at the time, the, the effort was all on the initiation factor known as 2 or 2B. And uh, that one's driven by energy. And what we know is that the liver will respond to very small amounts of protein and very small amounts of energy. If you think about it, your liver can't stop if you go into starvation, where muscle actually does shut down. And so what really made it different is that muscle responds to a totally different set of systems that are much more regulated and much more meal-based because the body only triggers it when everything's right, where in the liver you have to always run the system. But in muscle, it really is much more susceptible to the diet and the and physical activity and signals and blood flow and all kinds of things. So, what did you what 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 have you come to a conclusion on, on protein distribution? I mean, I know I have my thoughts on it, but what would you say? 
somebody, so for a lot of our listeners, they're looking to kind of maximize how much muscle they can build. Um, they and just so, want to look good naked, really. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we don't have any, we don't have I'm any noble no here. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, what would you, if you had a take home message in terms of protein distribution, uh, and I don't think I've ever actually asked you this question before. I, I think I know you kind of your broad ideas on it. So I'd be interested to see how it lines up with mine. What would you say in terms of a protein intake uh, frequency and distribution of protein for an individual per day? Yeah, so, so I do think that the meal response is, is initially driven by leucine as a threshold. Uh, and that translates into about a 30-gram uh, protein meal, maybe 40, you know, but it's, it's sort of in that range depending on the quality of the protein. And as far as actual distribution, again, I sort of would focus on the individual. So if I'm looking, talking with an individual who is just a healthy adult looking to maintain weight, I usually recommend two meals a day. I think that two meals really? a day or two, two meals a day that hit the protein target. Wow. Right. But if I was talking to a bodybuilder who's trying to max it out, I might go to five meals a day. Mm. So, you know, I think, it again, the important thing, and you were talking about the duration, the important thing is to realize that a meal has an anabolic period of about two hours, give or take a little bit. And so how many anabolic periods do you want to try and create relative to how many calories do you want to eat? Uh, and so when I'm talking with weight loss people, I target three meals a day, which I think minimizes muscle loss while they're losing body fat. But if I'm just looking for maximum muscle mass, uh, I'd go to at least four, if not five meals a day. So the number of meals per day to me depends on what the person's target is. Very interesting. And, and I think one, of the, one point I want to highlight, and this may be a little bit more esoteric for the fitness community, but it's I, I actually hit about the same um, with with the people I work with, I usually recommend four or five meals per day. Mm -hmm. um, I, and I now when I went to when I got to graduate school, I was eating eight meals per day of like, <laughs> you know thirty grams, forty grams of protein per meal. And I, so this is why I tell people about bias. Uh, I'm like I was biased to, towards protein. I wanted to find more reasons to eat more protein and eat it more frequently. And when I graduated, I actually ate less protein and ate it less frequently. Now, I still eat a, I still eat a high-protein diet. It's much higher than most, most people because I enjoy mm -hmm. protein. But um, I think there's a tendency to kind of overdo it in fitness, and there is an anabolic cap. And also, based on the, the, the research we, we did, uh, where we were able to show that, you know, if you just eating more frequently may not – cause you to re-stimulate more muscle protein synthesis, that there's this refractory period after a meal that the system, for lack of a better term, may need time to reset. Yeah, I think that, I think one of the things that has come out of the research, and again, I'll go back to, if you look in the literature, almost every single study out there uh, shows a protein response after an overnight fast. That is, that is the single most important meal and most responsive meal. And there's also a fair amount of data that that refractory period may last as much as five hours. So I think five hours sort of determines when your next effective meal will be. And so you can sort of count through the days, five hours apart and eight meals a day, you ran out of hours. Yeah. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think that uh, those are kind of the numbers to keep in mind. Your most responsive meal is breakfast. Your target something above 30 grams of protein, and it probably takes five hours before you'll get another optimum response that would be anabolic. Okay, well that uh, that's uh, that's exactly my thoughts on the subject. <laughs> it sounds like maybe we work together, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I, tell, I tell people actually what I, what I miss the most is uh, from graduate school is, uh, you know, just sitting in, uh, in the conference room and just tossing ideas back between uh, you and, and, and Gabe Wilson and uh, Dee Walker and, uh, or Alaska, I suppose. And, uh, and Suzanne and, and, and Dr. Garlic and everything. That's what, made it, you know, so cool uh, for, for me. 
and uh, just the throwing of ideas around. So uh, actually, I think it's probably time to take another break before we get carried away with questions. Uh, thank you guys. You're listening to Physique Science Radio. Hey guys, one of the things that's always on my mind is how can I give back to the industry that has done so much for me? That's why we formed the BioLane Foundation. The BioLane Foundation is a philanthropic initiative to raise money for grad school level research that is going to contribute to the fitness industry. And 100% of all your donations will be paid out to students. If you'd like to donate, you can go to BioLane.com, click on the About tab, and click on BioLane Foundation, and you can put your donation in through there. Or, if you're a student and you'd like to apply for a grant, go to BioLane.com, click the About tab, BioLane Foundation, and you can find the applications online there. Thank you guys so much, and I'm looking forward to all the great research that comes from these donations. You're listening to Physique Science Radio with Lane Norton and Sohee Lee. If you like what you hear and you'd like to learn more about us, read some of our articles, please visit my website at www.biolane.com and Sohee's website at sohifit.com. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you listening and hope to hear more from you in the future. We're back on Physique Science Radio with our very special guest today, Dr. Don Lehman. And uh, Dr. Lehman, I, we've been talking about kind of sustainability. We've been talking about uh, um, flexibility in dieting. And I just gave a talk over in the UK uh, at Epic Fitness Summit. And the title of the talk was Why Your Diet is Doomed to Fail. And now they wanted a, a really provocative title. But I went through basically um, the research on diet success rate and gave different definitions of success. And when you look at I, when I started the talk off, I had people raise their hands and I said, who, who out there thinks we have a weight loss problem? And every, you know, pretty much everybody mm-hmm. raises their hands. Mm-hmm. And I said, you guys are wrong. Um, and the research says that of people who are overweight, six out of seven of those people will lose a significant portion of that weight during their life, but that they basically all regain it. That uh, if you look at weight loss data and you look at weight regain data from significant weight loss, at one year uh, post post diet or post weight loss, you have a, a, a rate of of if you define success as them being able to keep it off, the success rate is thirty percent at one year. At two years, it's eighty. I'm sorry, it's thirty percent at one year. At two years, it's fifteen percent, and at three years, it's five percent. So diets have basically a ninety five percent failure rate because if we can't keep it off what's the problem and I remember one of the things you said to me was that most people yo-yo diet and it's actually worse than if you just never dieted in the first place uh, can you talk about why that is and, and your thoughts on kind of weight regain and some of the problems we face <laughs> yeah well you know I, I think you know the, the first point is it's back to the flexible dieting I um, I mean we we, I think, have proven in the last 40 years that a focus on low-fat dieting is not very successful. It's not very sustainable. And frankly, the longer we preach that, the fatter the American population got. So I think we do need to tailor diets to what individuals are like. And so, you know, if you're if you are talking to an omnivore and you're preaching a vegetarian diet, you're pretty sure that's not sustainable. <laughs> uh, you know, so so you know what you know, the regain issue. The issue is when you lose weight. You know, I tease that people. There's there's all kinds of diets for losing weight. You know, you know duct tape works just fine. You cover your mouth and you won't eat. Uh, <laughs> You know, the, the, the problem is, is when you lose weight rapidly, you'll lose a mixture of lean tissue and fat. Right. And the more lean tissue you lose during that process, uh, the fewer calories you can burn and presumably the less sustainable it becomes. And as you said, the majority of people dieting incorrectly will regain the weight and what we know is for adults, when you regain the weight, and it's been shown in many animal studies too, is that you gain almost only fat back. So the only way to regain the muscle in equal amount is with resistance exercise. So, you know, if you yo-yo, 
then you're in trouble unless you commit to very heavy resistance exercise during the regain. And most people who are rebounding from a bad diet aren't actually hitting the gym real hard. So, you know, the yo-yoing process uh, just keeps getting body composition worse. And we sort of had a, you know, we sort of had a, I guess, a joke in our research laboratory at the University of Illinois when we were doing obesity studies is that uh, it was always more difficult for women to lose weight than men because most of the men were what we call diet virgins. They hadn't yo-yoed a lot, where <laughs> yes. a lot of women had, right. and so they had already distorted their body composition, which made it much harder for them to lose. So, Dr. Lehman, just to uh, summarize what you've been saying here, what I'm hearing is that the so first of all, we don't want to lose weight too fast. That I think that's pretty established. I think we all know this. Uh, and as you say, the faster you lose, uh, the more lean body mass you lose, which in turn burns fewer calories. But also, I'd like to add, you know, from a behavioral standpoint, and generally, if you're trying to lose fat faster, generally means you're resorting to more extreme measures, which as Lane, you know, we talk about sustainability, you can't keep that up for a long time. And eventually you're going to you're going to rebound. Um, so you're saying that when we regain the weight, our body composition is actually worse than before than before we started dieting. Is that correct? Yeah, it is. And each with each yo-yo cycle, it gets worse and worse. Right. And as we also get older during the process, it gets worse. So it's just a losing battle. Yeah, that's there's actually some really good science to support that. Um, I, I can't remember the name of the researchers, but there was a study done where basically they took people, two groups of people. One group had, had never uh, attempted uh, significant weight loss before. And the other group had intent had I think it was at least uh, three cycles of dieting, where they had lost significant weight, and they wanted to match them based on their uh, essentially their predicted metabolic rate based on I think it was the Harris Benedict equation, and they basically matched them so that these both these groups should lose the same amount of weight if the if adherence was the same, and they I, I gotta find the study now. Uh, and they found that the group that had never dieted before lost a significantly greater amount of weight mm -hmm. than the group who had engaged it in multiple diet cycles. And I tell people, you have to understand from a teleological perspective of survival, when you cause, when you uh, diet very, very hard, um, you, you are triggering that survival mechanism, mm -hmm. uh, which is lowering your metabolic rate, uh, reducing your expenditure, all those sorts of things. And they've even shown that some of those uh, metabolic uh, changes, uh, I think it was that they, there was a study showing that even eight weeks of really harsh dieting, even eight weeks produced adaptations in metabolism that persisted for over a year. I think wow. that's pretty incredible. And I think it yeah. speaks to the, the, when you really restrict very, very harshly, it's no longer, uh, I mean, it is a calorie balance thing. But so much so that your body is perceiving that is almost an insult on survivability. Yeah, I, you know, I think I think this whole area of sort of sustainability is important. And you know, you work in a little different arena than I do. I, I sure. work more in the arena of healthy adults, uh, and and so I I frankly never talk about diets. I talk about lifestyles. Yeah. And if it's not a sustainable sure, lifestyle, right. you should never try it. Uh, if you can't see yourself doing exactly this diet or exactly this thing a year from now, then don't bother. Oh, um, my God. So wait, you, I was just going to say, yeah. um, I really like Dr. Lehman right now. <laughs> so, Don, she, in, your world, in your world where there are specific competitions and, and frequently, <laughs> you, know, you know, body compositions of physique, you know, there, there are cycles, but I think the – what one needs to do is minimize the range of the cycle if you want to keep it healthy. So, you know, try try to not have huge swings from competition level to non-competition level because, frankly, there's plenty of evidence it's just not a healthy thing to do. Well, the reason Sohi and I just both went <laughs> nuts out of our seats is Sohi had a quote on Twitter, and this must have been... This is when we became, we became friends after this. <laughs> two years, yeah, friends. Uh, this is like two years ago, Sohi, Sohi said, if the diet you're doing, you can't see yourself doing in six months or 12 months or three years, um, you've got to rethink it because it's going to backfire on you. That was essentially the crux of the quote, yeah. right, right, Sohi? Right, right, right. 
And so you, I mean, you basically just almost I verbatim said it. I love this, yeah. I read the quote. Yeah, I was going to say, so all we can deduce from this is uh, Dr. Lehman follows Sohi on Twitter for us. So that's great. I think a lot of people don't think about the uh, the these things when they go to diet. I, I work with a lot of people, but even, even non-competitors who say, I, I, I don't care what it takes, I'll do anything to lose weight. And and the problem becomes well, what when what happens when that becomes more destructive long term than it does? What what happens when you're taking two steps forward but three steps back? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people don't think about that. They just get caught up in the short term. And even when I went to Illinois, uh, I remember there was um, uh, they have a they had a I can't remember the name of the weekend, but there was a student weekend, a prospective student weekend. That's what it was called, and. Uh, I went out there uh, for the nutritional sciences division. They had like a little uh, night party, I would say, for uh, for the for the incoming students. And I was discussing with somebody I can't remember who it was about the ketogenic diet, and they were saying uh, that they just thought it was a bad idea and nobody should ever do it, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, well, you know, I, I think that for most people it's probably not a good idea because they can't stick to it. But if for whatever reason, if that's something that just fits somebody's lifestyle and they can make it a lifestyle and they can stick to it then I think it's fine because I mm-hmm. think the best diet is probably the one that you can stick to. Yeah. Uh, I, no, I agree with that philosophy. I, you know, I think there may be medical reasons to use short-term diets for certain, like a ketogenic diet, but right. uh, in general, you really do have to ask yourself whether it's something you could stick to. I could no more do a ketogenic diet than fly. I mean, I just, <laughs> it, it would never work for me. Yeah, that, that's that's correct. My my wife, uh, I forget who was one of our friends, uh, Dr. Dom D'Agostino, who's who's a great guy, who you know. Uh, Dom is ketogenic, and Dom does a ketogenic diet. He lives that lifestyle. Now he does uh, put like high fiber fruits in there, you know, like strawberries and, and berries and that sort of thing, and and uh, he will eat vegetables. Um, but he does a, you know, he lives that lifestyle, and, and he he's fine with it, and he enjoys it, and he's able to. To, to continue with it. And like you said, I, I think that there are short-term uh, medical reasons that make sense for ketogenic diets. Um, but again, it's one of those things that from, from the long term, I, I had this, I was in a roundtable debate, I don't want to call it debate, but a roundtable discussion with people trying to determine kind of what we could do to improve dietary uh, adherence and, and, and long-term weight loss. And I said, well, I think you, you, and somebody kept talking about, you know, blood glucose control and all these sorts of things. And I said, well, maybe I'm, I'm just looking at it from the 10,000 foot perspective. Um, but the way I look at this is you, you guys are, are, are taking a, a BB gun when you need a cannon. You know, you're, <laughs> you're worried about these all these small kind of intrinsic pathways and what we need to do is just get people just to stick to a caloric deficit. Like <laughs> we yeah. just need to be able to get people mm-hmm. to stick to some sort of self-restriction. And right now, what do they hear on TV? Uh, the two the two week weight loss solution, or yeah. you know whatever Doctor Oz is peddling this week, or you know all those sorts of things. And I think they get bombarded with one the idea that there's this quick fix, and two the the idea that it has to be something extreme. That the reason that people aren't losing weight is because they're not doing something esoteric or extreme enough. Right, and people start to freak out if if it feels easy. And I, this baffles me, but it has happened like a number of times where I you know I work with a lot of fat loss clients, and they sometimes they'll say, uh, "I don't. This doesn't feel hard." And even though they've lost inches, they're losing pounds off the scale. They're like, "This is not extreme enough. Can we cut calories?" And I'm like, uh, "This is a good thing. This is a really good place to be. Why would you want to cut calories if you're making progress?" Yeah, they people th- seem to think it needs to be torture in mm-hmm. some way, but uh, yeah, I uh, uh, you know I think the sustainability aspect and uh, is very important, and we have to you know we have to find lifestyles that people can live with. I think if you look at the literature, I think the research literature is pretty clear that in losing weight higher protein and lower carbohydrates is the better pattern. It's not the only one, but if you want to lose more fat and, and spare lean tissue, uh, shifting your percentage toward 
higher protein, lower carb, and fat, frankly, in the diet doesn't make that much difference other than it's a calorie input. You have to control it from a calorie standpoint, but the reality is fat's pretty passive from a metabolic standpoint. So, you know, I certainly always favor higher protein and lower lower carbs as the right way to go, but you don't have to be extreme even in that. Exactly, and I think that's Again, one of the things we, we get into is, is extreme, especially in the industry, we, Sohi and I work in the fitness industry, the, the extremism of, you know, for example, earlier you, you mentioned that insulin, you know, it's, it's, it's fats, promotes fat storage, this sort of thing. So now we have people who will say, well, I don't want to eat whey protein because whey protein causes an insulin release. And it's like, <coughs> calm down. It's not like you release a little bit of insulin and all fat burning just immediately ceases everywhere. You know, there is a dose response to this. Now that's and, one of my that's one of my pet peeves actually, and it's an area that that I think the research isn't as clear as it should be, but uh, one of the things to recognize about protein versus carbohydrates and insulin is that protein almost exclusively only produces a first phase insulin response. Yes. And the reason for that is it's part of the signaling to muscle. Uh, and it's, you know, in terms of glucose grams per gram, it's like 30% uh, of the overall effect. But you get a strong first phase response, but glucose causes a, a prolonged lasting second phase and protein doesn't. And that's really the difference between the two. And the research uh, bears that out because if you look at um, like uh, the research, there's the, the consensus on protein or branched chain amino acids releasing insulin is actually kind of spotty. And the reason is because of the time points they measure. If they look an hour out from, from branched chain amino acid or, or protein ingestion, they usually miss it. And yep. they don't, you don't see any response of insulin. So they'll say, well, this doesn't cause an insulin response. And the, but the other thing, the, yeah, the other thing in the literature that is, is people who say it's insulinogenic, if you look, they're almost all euglycemic clamps. And wh what they did was they sort of clamp, they stabilized the glucose intake level, and they infuse branched-chain amino acids on top of it. And what you see is a fairly strong insulin response. But if you trade out protein for, you know, for carbohydrates, if you substitute it, or if you do it orally, you won't get nearly that response. Right, and that's why I always say it's it's very important to when you're looking at studies to read the study, read the way it was performed, and ask yourself, is that a physiological outcome? I'm not saying that studies with euglycemic clamps aren't important. They are. There, there's there's defined reasons why you would do it that way, but it's a, that is answering a different question than the question of does branch chain or, or whey protein cause an insulin response? I, and your your last comment about uh, you know reading the study, it's you know I really like Twitter. I think it has. A, <laughs> I like I like it from the social media standpoint of, of exchanging ideas. But I think one of the risks we're falling into is people are now reporting on e-publications of papers before they actually appear, and all they have is the abstract. And I think there's a real danger in that with with taking the authors at face value without actually reading the study and the context of it, I think we're uh, I think we're beginning to get a little uh, superficial in our approach to science. Absolutely, and and I I, I call these uh, people uh, abstract. I was going to say, you mean you don't just read abstracts? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's not what but you're that's, saying. <laughs> that's that's a again uh, one of the big problems is. Uh, is people with kind of larger followings will read an abstract and they'll post. I say you, you have to realize that the conclusion that's given in the abstract is really nothing more than an author's opinion of that data. Yes. I've, I've read papers where I'll look at the data and I'll go, that is not what your study says at all. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I'm sure you've had the same response. Um, and often if you go into the discussion, the authors will be reasonably fair about the data, but when it gets extracted to an abstract in a one sentence, man, it can go way off target. Yeah, actually, I think I know a paper that you would, would agree with, and we'll finish up on this. Um, give us your comments on that paper that appeared in Cell about a year, I think it was about a year and a half ago. They've got a huge amount of publicity. And basically was, some of you all may remember it as the paper that said eating protein was the same thing as smoking in terms of lung cancer. What? Yes. Uh, I, uh, I wrote an editorial about that and, 
and uh, got fairly involved. Frankly, it's been long enough that I can't remember the details, but basically it was a epidemiological type of study and it was a true case of where people uh, basically went through the data and kept mining it and kept doing additional statistics till they found something they wanted to report on oh it. And uh, it, it was really one of the, the poorest publications in the peer-reviewed literature I've ever seen. Yeah, and, and that's, uh, I think you said a uh, comment one time of, uh, if you torture the data enough, you can find mm -hmm. something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, well, you're on Twitter, so can you tell us where, where people can find you on Twitter so they can follow you? So I'm uh, at Don Lehman, so it's easy. Very cool. And uh, do you have any, what other, so you are Professor Emeritus as of now, correct? Yes. And uh, so you are semi, for those who don't understand, that means basically semi-retired. Um, so not taking graduate students. Sorry, everybody out there. I think I was one of the la I think Gabe was the last one, and I think yes. I was one of the last ones, had the <laughs> honor of that. Um, but tell us kind of what are your projects now, and what do you spend, uh, what do you spend your time doing? Uh, so I'm doing a lot of consulting with food companies. Uh, I work with a lot of the uh, whey companies, so uh, Divesco, the Bipro company, and, and White Wave, and Fonterra. Uh, Ginomoto, so a lot of the protein amino acid companies. Uh, I actually have a, my own uh, weight loss uh, nutrition company called Kivana, Q-I-V-A-N-A, -A, which is a direct marketing company. And so a lot of the a lot of the programs we developed, we have actually put into convenient con commercial forms that people can access. People when we did all of our studies said well where can you get this sort of thing why can't we do it why isn't it available so we actually decided to make it available so those are sort of the things I do quite a lot of speaking uh, you know physicians dietitians uh, you know groups uh, around so you know it's it's fun I get the flexibility of talking science all the time and, and uh, that's it's a great way to go so so retirement's just Pretty lazy for you then, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, I travel a lot more. My my uh, sons both tease me that I, I work harder now than when actually the university paid me. So I probably shouldn't say that to the university. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. But you have to well, respect that kind of passion. <laughs> it is. You know, people ask me, you know, what are my hobbies? And, and the reality is my hobbies are physical activity and science. And, mm -hmm. you know, that may be, make me pretty boring, but those are the things I enjoy doing. Right. No, that's great. I mean, that, that formed the crux of what I do now. I found something I love doing. I got sciencey with it and uh, made it a career. And I think so he would probably attest to about the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Well, Dr. Lehman, Thank you uh, for coming on the on the podcast. As you can tell, I still can't call you Don. I think it's something <laughs> about uh, PhD advisor uh, that, that never actually Tracy told me that, um, and uh, she's like, "Yeah, you'll 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 it'll be a long time before you ever get over that." And uh, but uh, we really appreciate having you, and uh, it was a, it was an absolute pleasure. So thank you so much for coming fun. on. Thank you. It was fun to join you guys anytime. All right, thank you, Dr. Layman. Take care. <laughs>